0: All right, so we are looking at the second half of the book of Zechariah tonight. Uh, And just to recap, Zechariah was a priest uh, who was very, very young when the Lord brought him, along with 50,000 other Israelites, home from exile in Babylon. Zechariah was from a priestly family, the family of Iddo, his grandfather. uh, And they were sent there. They were authorized by the Emperor of Persia, Cyrus himself, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And it started, the work was started in 536 B.C., but then for various reasons was halted and sat unfinished for 16 years. But in the fall of 520 B.C., two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, both preached and inspired the people to continue. By this time, the emperor of Persia was Darius, and he also wrote a letter to the enemies of Israel saying, leave these people alone, let them finish the work. So all these things came together, and over the course of the next four years, the temple was completed. Uh, So Zechariah's book started, what we looked at last week, was uh, these eight visions that he had in a single night. And the visions were messages of hope. Zechariah is one of the more hopeful of all the prophetic books. Uh, there were messages about how God had been angry with his people, but he's, he would carry their sins away to a distant place. He would be their protection, a wall of fire about them. He would give them everything they needed to finish the temple. But more than that, he was promising there would be a man who would come. He called him the branch. And this became known in Israel as a messianic term, the branch of David, who would come and rebuild a different kind of temple, a temple that would involve all the nations of the world. So that's That's uh, chapters 1 through 6. Now we're going to pick up with chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And on your notes, you have my version of the scriptures, which is the English Standard Version. You can follow along. Uh, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech. By the way, one of my commentaries pointed out what I would have missed. That's one good thing about commentaries. Those two names don't sound Israeli, do they? Those are Babylonian names. These were people who were born in Babylon. Isn't it interesting that you know you leave home for a while and you start to take on the ways of the other nations? But fortunately, you don't forget the Lord God. So, now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts, And the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done so for many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you have fasted and, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So this is two years after those eight visions that we talked about last week. We we can precisely date it because Zechariah gives us the date in terms of Zechariah in terms of Darius's reign, and we know from secular sources what years Darius reigned. So this is one of those rare times where we can say, okay, it was on uh, I think the, the exact date is February nineteenth of the year five eighteen B.C. You can't usually date biblical events that precisely, but we can this time, and God shows up for Zechariah again. And I don't know because I've never been a prophet and probably never will be, but it seems to me that gives us kind of an insight into what it's like to be a prophet. You know, one night you have eight visions. You don't get any sleep at all. And then you don't hear from God for a while. And you just go on about your business. You just keep on doing the last thing he told you to do. And then two years later, he shows up again and says, okay, I have another message for you. It's kind of an interesting life, isn't it? Uh, Being the conduit of God's word. The question, the specific question that, that Uh, inspires this or that uh, causes this, provokes this from God is these two officials, these two leaders from Israel come and say, listen, for the last 70 years, we've been fasting every year in the fifth month. Now, what is this about? Well, it doesn't say here, but people who've studied tell us that during the time of exile, the Israelites had these regular fasts where they would fast for okay let's let's go without food on this day because this is the day when the walls came down. Let's go without food on this day because this is the day the temple was burned. let's go without food on this day because this is the day when our people were exiled And so they would they would have these days of mourning and fasting uh, sort of similar to how we observe uh, the anniversary of 9/11 or for all those years how we observed, December 7th, uh, Pearl Harbor Day, except so much more, because I don't know any Americans who would do without food on those days. We would sit and we would remember, we'd watch TV, and we'd think about what happened. We'd be sorrowful, but the the Israelites took it further. They would go without food as a way of mourning for those things. And his question is, we've been doing that, but now that we're back in the land, do we need to keep doing it? You know, one of the things, I, I worked with a guy in another church who said that, uh, that church is sort of like the government in this sense. You never, you can't start a program because it'll never be able to end. You know, once you start a program, you can't stop it. Cause everybody's like, no, no, no you can't stop doing that. No, no, no you can't, you, you started it, you can't stop it. Uh, so it's sort of similar, you know, even if the purpose for that program is long since passed. people in churches feel like, but that's tradition. And, and this is what this guy's saying, you know, do we need to keep fasting now that we're back in the land? And I want you to notice, God doesn't answer their question directly. He will later. We'll get to that. But he answers their question with a question. Does that remind you of anybody? That's Jesus. Exactly. It's almost like this is the father of Jesus that's talking, right? He's doing the same thing. He says, hey, when you fasted and mourned, were you doing that for me or for you? And you might think, well, who fasts for themselves? Well, Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount or in Matthew 23, actually, about the the priests and the and the scribes who would fast and they would make themselves look very miserable so people would be impressed with them and maybe that's part of what God's talking about you're just you're just trying to be outwardly pious so you can impress others or maybe maybe they're fasting to uh, to just feel sorry for themselves they're not they're not really mourning before God they're not examining their hearts and saying is there anything in us that He's going to cause God to send us into exile again. They're just, they're just sitting around feeling sorry for themselves, which is not the same thing. So he's asking them to examine themselves. Why have you been doing this all this time? And then he goes on, and we won't read this part, but he goes on and, and rem- to remind them, you're supposed to treat each other well. You're supposed to take care of the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the poor. All through the Old Testament, those names, those terms, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor. Those are general terms that that mean anybody who has less than you, anybody who's on the margins, anybody who society ignores. If you're a person of God, if you're a nation of God, you're supposed to take care of them. This is one of the things that's interesting to me is we continue to think of the prophetic books of the Bible as being all about the future. And yes, there are parts of the scriptures that talk about the future, and we're going to get to some of those tonight. But the vast majority of the prophets are about so much more. They're about what's going on in Israel at that time, and it shows us the heart of God. It shows us what, what does God really consider holy living? Holy living involves a whole lot more than going to church and, and not saying bad words and avoiding certain vices. It involves the way you treat others, especially those with less than yourself. So you can't read the prophets without seeing that. All right, so let's skip to chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. This is a little section I want to show you just because it it spoke to me personally. I'll tell you why. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. So what what really touched me about that is in 2020, Early 2020, we took a trip, uh, a group from this church took a trip to Israel, and the tour group that organized it said, if you get this together, I'll I'll take your family for free. Well, okay. Uh, So Carrie, Kaylee, Will, we all got to go with this wonderful group from our church to Israel, and I got to tell you, Carrie was worried about that, and a lot of you probably would say the same thing. I don't know if I want to go over there. That's the problem with watching the news too much. We, we only see the bad stuff. Um, and I kept telling her, I've been there. You're not going to feel unsafe. You're going to be welcome. Well, one of the things she said to me after we'd gotten to Jerusalem itself, and you're in that old city with those walls and those corridors through those marketplaces, one of the things she said to me was, if, I, if, I, if there was anything left in me that would be scared, I'd be relieved by the fact that I, all, everywhere I look, I see little kids running around playing and I don't see any parents around. And it just says, it's got to be a safe neighborhood if parents are going to send their kids to play out in the street without even being out there to watch them. We don't even do that in Conroe. So I don't say that to say anything about the uh, you know, relative safety between our two nations. I say that to say, we saw that prophecy fulfilled, at least in part, ourselves. When Zechariah hears this, He's looking at a city of Jerusalem that is mostly ruins, a half-built temple, walls that haven't been built yet. You know, in the old world, in the ancient world, a city without walls was like a a city today without a police force. Crime could run rampant. And so to hear someday old people just sit out outside with their staff in their hand and, and, you know, comment to people as they walk past and little kids will play in the streets, nobody would have believed him. But we saw it with our own eyes. And of course, that's not even the ultimate fulfillment. He's... He's, I think, prefiguring a a new Jerusalem that is yet to come. So, chapter 8, verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts, therefore love, truth, and peace." So what is he doing? He's finally getting back to that question he was asked in chapter seven. What about these fasts that we've been doing for the last 70 years? He says, I'm gonna turn those fasts into feasts. You're not gonna go without food on those days anymore. Now you're gonna celebrate. There's no reason to fast anymore. Remember what Jesus said when the scribes came to him and said, how come your disciples aren't fasting? You remember what he said? He said, because the bridegroom's with them. It would be rude when your relatives come in to say, oh, no, 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 I can't feed you because I'm fasting. No, you're supposed to celebrate when family comes in. Jesus says, that I'm with them. They got no reason to be sorrowful. When I leave, then they'll fast. What God is saying is, you don't have a reason to weep and mourn for the temple anymore, or for the city, or for the walls, or for the people, because all of that is in the process of being restored. So now it's going to be a feast instead of a fast. Verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a single Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you isn't that a great prophecy it's it's saying okay right now we the jews are seen as cursed people our nation was taken away but you know what that's happened to how many different people groups down through history as i've said many times before when's the last time you met a philistine or a, or a hittite or an amorite or any of those other peoples that you've read about in history or in the bible they're all gone and yet the jews remain He's saying, you know, God hasn't given up on us. Not only has God not given up on us, someday people are going to come to us for salvation. I'm going to grab hold of the, the robe of a Jew and say, hey, I want to go with you because you've got salvation. Does that happen? Yeah, that's the book of Acts. This little ragtag band of Jewish men and women just scatter out through the Mediterranean world and take salvation with them. And then, then they cross over into Europe. And, you know, the rest is history. So here we see uh, something that even Zechariah didn't know how fully that was going to be fulfilled. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, all of us, I'm sure, know what that foretells. That's That's Palm Sunday. That's Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Uh, But the background is this. I didn't read verses one through eight, but in verses one through eight, it goes down a list of cities that are gonna be destroyed. And when you look at them on a map, their cities, it goes from north to south. And it's talking about the day when some of Israel's ancient enemies like the Philistines will cease to be. And that was fulfilled when Alexander the Great March south through the land. If you remember your world history, Alexander the Great was a very young Greek man who just, he just wanted to take over the world. And he took over most of it. Um, And verses 9 through 10 aren't just foretelling the the triumphal entry. They're foretelling the difference between the two kind of conquerors, between Jesus and a guy like Alexander the Great. So pick up with verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So unlike Alexander the Great, Jesus doesn't ride a horse, a war horse. He rides the foal of a donkey, a colt. People have said, oh, well, yeah, but in the ancient world, kings rode donkeys. Yes, that's true, but they didn't ride colts. This is, this is a deliberate a deliberate contrast. This is Jesus saying, I'm a king of peace. Now, you read Revelation 19 and 20, you see him on that white horse coming on the day of, uh, on, uh, at the end of the world, on his return, coming to judge the living and the dead, but only after everyone's had a chance for the grace that he brings as the king of peace. So let's skip to chapter 11, verse 7. So I became, this is Zechariah talking, I became the shepherd of a flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named favor, the other I named union, and I tended the sheep. Now what's going on here, I think, is a sort of acted out parable that uh, Zechariah is trying to show the difference between a a faithful shepherd and and a false shepherd. As we all know, at various times in the history of Israel, sometimes they had good leadership. Sometimes they had kings who followed the Lord and loved the people, and they had priests and prophets who were faithful and interpreted the word of God truly. And other times they had corrupt priests or or, or kings who led the people into idolatry. And so uh, Zechariah is trying to act out this parable and, and, and show the difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. In verse 8 it says, In one month I destroyed the three shepherds But I became impatient with them, meaning the sheep, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. So what this describes is he tries to be a good shepherd, but the sheep reject him. They won't be led by him. And so he says, okay, just pay me what I'm due and I'll, I'll leave you alone. And they give him 30 pieces of silver. Now in that time, what that meant was, that was the price in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic law, if you had a, a bull that got out of your 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 pasture and attacked your neighbor's slave and killed him, you owed that man 30 pieces of silver for that slave's life. So he's saying, that's why he calls it a lordly price. You know, I, my wages aren't much. It's just a little. We, of course, see this as a foretelling of Jesus comes to be the good shepherd over us, and we, the sheep, have cast him out. And, of course, the price for him was 30 pieces of silver. Um, And, of course, we know also the rest of the story that, that Judas threw the money back into the temple and they bought the potter's field, and that's where they buried poor people from then on. So, so much in Zechariah we can see fulfilled already. Chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, it should be obvious to any of us that he's still talking about Jesus here. He's still talking about what's going to happen to God's Messiah. Um the only son, the, the piercing. John 19.37 quotes it in the moment when Jesus' side is pierced by that, that spear. Uh, and as, that's when they realize he's finally dead. But there's another, interestingly, there's another final fulfillment. So it says they'll weep over him, they'll mourn over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So it indicates that the inhabitants of Jerusalem, there's going to be a spirit of grace, please, for mercy, they're going to weep over the one they've pierced. Now, that hasn't happened yet. In large part, the the Jewish people do not accept Jesus as their Messiah. But that won't always be the case. Romans 11 says that God is going to bring Jerusalem back in. I wish I knew what exactly that means. I don't think it means that every Jewish person is going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. But I, I think in some large measure... The Israelite people will come back into the fold and will accept Christ as their Messiah sometime before the return of Christ. That's the way I read Romans 11. And I think that's what this is talking about, too. All right, chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So Jesus quotes this, that that line about strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He quotes it in Matthew 26:31, right before he's arrested. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. You're all going to leave me because when you strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Uh, The rest of that passage I just read seems to be about the scattering, not just of the disciples, but of the Jewish people. Remember in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed and and the temple's never been rebuilt. Um, So he's prefiguring that, that dispersion of the Jewish people, I think. So what is he talking about when he says, two thirds will be cut off and one third will be left alive? I think it represents a faithful remnant. There are still uh, Jewish people who believe in Jesus. There are people who accept him as their Messiah. There always will be uh, up until the very end. I'm not, I can't prove that he's talking just about Israelites here, but the idea of refining, that's, that's an important idea in the scriptures, that God refines his people. Following Jesus isn't all about going from victory to victory with no difficulties in between. There are always times when God, there will always be times when God allows us to go through difficulties for a purpose. And those are refining times. And we we don't necessarily have to laugh and clap while that's happening, but we should at least praise God that I know he's able to do something through this. All right. So last part I want to show you, chapter 14. Chapter fourteen is all about the messianic kingdom to come. This is, you know, this is sort of uh, the book of Revelation in the Old Testament. Verse nine of chapter fourteen: "And the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. The Lord will be one, and His name one." If you only had one verse out of the whole book of Zechariah, that would be a great one to memorize. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And see that that phrase, on that day? That is said over and over again in chapter 14. On that day, this will happen. On that day, this will be true. The main thing, though, the main thing, and basically all you need to know is God will be king. And that's good news. He's the king we need. He's the king we want. Uh, chapter 14, verse 20 and 21 says, And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord, And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. That's the end of the book. So let me explain what's going on here. When he says, uh, holy to the Lord will be on the bells of the horses. That's actually what was really written on the turban of the high priest of Israel. So you think, what could be holier than the the hat that the high priest of Israel wears when he goes into the Holy of Holies? And it has that slogan, holy to the Lord, across it. But he says, on that day, it'll be inscribed on the bells of horses. So uh, sort of a modern way of saying that is, it'll be written on every license plate. Just common things will say, this belongs to God. Um, so it, it's basically going through, you know, the pots in your kitchen will be holy to the Lord. Everything will be holy. And when it says there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day, don't worry, businessmen, that's not, that's not saying you're excluded. But it's, it's, a, it's a tough word to translate and different versions. I have a version of the Bible, I can't remember which one, that translate that as Canaanite. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. So there's disagreement on what the Hebrew word means. Does it mean that uh, that no false religion will be in that place? Does it mean that the merchants in the temple, the people who used religion for their own good, uh, they'll be excluded? Well, I think both of those are true. I'm just not sure which of those this one's talking about because that that Hebrew word's kind of under dispute by us. But either way, either way, we know it's saying there's there's not going to be sin there. It's gonna be a place where everything is holy to the Lord. And and this is what's exciting about that. What do we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Among other things we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you ever think about what you're saying when you pray those words? We want want everything here, Lord, to be like it is up there. And we we haven't seen that happen yet, have we? We keep praying that, but we haven't seen it happen yet. It's certainly not. God's kingdom hasn't completely covered this earth yet. God's will certainly isn't completely being done in this world yet, but it will be. That's what this is about. This is about the day when finally that prayer gets fully answered and his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so at that day, Revelation 11:15 will be fulfilled. You know what Revelation 11:15 says? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we get discouraged, it's good to remember that we don't know the final score. Or we do know it. We're just not experiencing it yet. It's written for us in your word. Help us to remember that and to be encouraged not to lose hope. Lord, not to become resentful, but to love people who need to know your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with that kind of hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.